I'm Michael, welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Coraline, the 2009 film directed by Henry Selick, written by Henry Selick, based on the book by Neil Gaiman. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So Coraline is a movie that I hadn't seen, really. I think, Alex, once you had had done a screening 10 years ago or something when we first moved to L.A., and I watched part of it, I think, um, but hadn't really thought about it since then. And Trisha, you brought it up as a potentially (laughs) fun movie to to talk about and had kind of a really interesting pitch about it as far as like how it borrows from these ancient forms of storytelling, which is, of course, what our Lessons from Screenplay video is about. Why do you love Coraline? I assume you love it. And and what kind of made you make this connection with the ancient forms of storytelling that it borrows from? First of all, there's a lot of things to love about Coraline. Um, And I I pitched a video on it because I didn't want to do an actual scary movie for for Halloween. So (laughs) I kind of was just like, let me get this children's kind of creepy thing in here that might pass. And it did, thankfully. But I used to, uh, I was a teacher for many years. And I used to teach Coraline at the the fourth or fifth grade level, essentially. When I would, you know, talk to the students about it, the book really scared them. But the movie also disturbed them in a way that I thought was really interesting because they would be like giggling and then they would be really upset, like almost at the same time, (laughs) which got me thinking a lot about grotesques, which, you know, we got to talk about in the video. Uh, But yeah, that that mix of why do movies like this and then thinking back to like some of the animated movies that we watched in childhood, like All Dogs Go to Heaven and (laughs) some of those other Don Bluth, like weird animated films that they, they kind of they're for children. And but there are, you know, usually it's like the the spirit of the grotesque that ends up really upsetting us or, or, you know, even some of the. Um, puppet kind of things with like Muppets. So, you know, like Labyrinth or like Jim Henson-y kind of things. Those all sort of embody this like grotesque thing where we're never sure if we're supposed to be disgusted or horrified or amused or is it fun? So that was one of the things that originally like kind of got me interested in it. And then of course, the fairy tale structure is really present and really obvious in it. And also it's a ghost story. And so I don't know, I just thought it was a really unique blend of several different kinds of things that hit you on this like super deep childhood gut psychological level. Yeah. Well, and and I think that's, it was was such a cool pitch because it's it's unlike anything else we've done on the channel, really. Mm -hmm. And that was also why it was a little scary because it was not immediately clear how that translates into a video. (laughs) Sure. But I think going through it, it was really fun to figure that out and get to dive into these concepts. And I think the grotesques thing is what sticks with me the most mm-hmm. is because it's a term that I've in culture seen thrown around kind of in certain contexts, which just made me associate it with like, well, it's like gross things are grotesque. Right. But understanding the actual literary, more complex, detailed definition of it and realizing that Caroline is this really great example and that is what's so off-putting and it reminded me of the shining a little bit and and the video Uh about the shining of things that are creepy because they are you can't quite tell how you're supposed to feel about them and how that like biologically unsettles us as humans which is just it's a cool thing to be able to draw on that as a storyteller and alex i know you you've always loved Coraline. what what do you love about Coraline? what what made it speak to you 
Yeah, I mean, I remember when it first came out, it was probably like the best 3D movie I'd ever seen because oh my gosh, it, it was yeah. shot. It was shot in 3D, like with 3D cameras. Um, and because it's just like you know, it's it's a constructed world. The 3D made you feel like you were in this like tangible, mm-hmm. like little tiny like diorama set. You know, like you're you're actually enveloped in it in a really magical way. So for me, the thing that I was really blown away with first thing, and I think I may have seen it in theaters in 3D, was just like the artistry of it you know that was that was yeah. really what what captured me to start with was just it was the most um i think like technologically advanced stop motion animation i'd ever seen it had it actually used 3d better than any other film i'd seen also and it just had this magical quality to it it, it you know the the soundtrack by uh bruno coulet he's like a french composer mm-hmm. had this really magical quality to it the the color palette of the whole thing is really beautiful mm-hmm. it's got these weird creepy things i mean the, just the, even the button eyes alone is already this really like uh uncanny valley creepy creepiness that i wasn't expecting to see in like a quote-unquote kids film so i think all those combined i was just very surprised by i almost feel like i was going to see like uh like a foreign film or something like it didn't it didn't feel like the usual like American animated fare. Definitely, especially at the time. Yeah, so gen- so just I think I was just really surprised and blown away. And the more I watched it and I got it on Blu-ray and kind of studied it more, I just grew to more and more appreciate the complexity of what went into this film. You know, like just the, the raw artistry of every frame really blows me away. So I just really appreciate it as a work of art. And I really commit it from like the director perspective of like, being so impressed and having such an appreciation for the love and craft that went into into this film. Yeah, it is just visually striking for sure. I also love that you had a 3D television. You were like one of I the did. 10 people in the world that had a 3D I, there television. There was like a brief moment <laughs> where they were trying to make 3D TVs happen. And I was one of the people that bought one. And <laughs> this was one of the only movies that actually like was worth watching on the 3D TV. Most other 3D Blu-rays just kind of were annoying to look at. <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of a failed home theater ex- experiment. And so Brian, when did you first see Coraline? What's your relationship with this movie? Uh, I definitely didn't see it right when it came out. I saw it a couple years later, but I came to it as a Neil Gaiman fan um, who has been one of my favorite authors since 2004 or five, somewhere around there. Uh, I've read, I think, all of his novels except for Stardust. It's a lot of novels. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm partial to his more, like, adult ones like uh american gods and neverwhere and good omens mm-hmm. um but uh, i also love his his sort of young adult stuff like Coraline, and uh i had also read uh like if you love this movie then read the book Coraline for sure but also read the graveyard book and mm-hmm. the the ocean at the end of the lane both of which are like same tone of like really creepy and disturbing but still like accessible for younger audiences and that kind of thing um so yeah i actually read the book with the intention of then watching the movie right afterwards which i did um and it was cool to see the changes and the similarities and just sort of like what i had pictured in my head and what henry Selleck pictured in his head and that kind of thing uh so yeah but i hadn't seen it since then i think i watched it and thought cool that was great and then just sort of didn't really think about it afterwards but then it's been interesting to see how over the past decade younger people than me like maybe like 10 years younger or so it's it's become a movie that they grew up with so it's Mm -hmm. sort of like as a movie that has continued to be 
kind of in the in the conversation uh more and more it's just a movie yeah it's almost seemed like it's become more popular years after its release than when it first came out yeah it, it is interesting to see it have that that life because it, it for me it kind of flew under the radar at the time yeah it, it's been fun to go back and revisit it i like it because it reminds me of the nightmare before christmas of course but like <laughs> the, the animation style which was one of my favorite movies and i was obsessed with it and so it's fun to see that evolution and james and the giant peach i was right. also very obsessed with yeah. that as a child uh, like some of my so you're first... just a Selick fan I and I didn't really realize it because, uh, you know, as a kid, you're like, oh, yeah, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then you go on and then you get older and you're <laughs> like, wait a minute. But like, Tim, what did Tim Burton do on it? Um, <laughs> presented <yep. laughs> it. That's, that's one of my favorite. Like, I love the trivia questions that are like, like you know, like what uh, what movie famously had um, uh, Eye of the Tiger. And it was actually Rocky three, not Rocky one, like things like that. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, questions yeah. everyone thinks I know the answer to. And it's like, actually, no. So who directed Nightmare Before Christmas is a fun one because they're like, wait, Tim Burton didn't direct Tim Burton's <laughs> the Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> I've been lied to this whole time. Yeah. And just the, you know, the stop motion technique is mm-hmm. really neat to see and is extremely impressive. And, and as a kid really captured my imagination and some of the first filmmaking I did as a kid was taking my video camera and making stop motion films where you like mm. hit record and then like got to hit record immediately after because there was no way to just record a single frame. I, mean, I think what's fun about animation and especially stop motion animation is it really draws if, if you're thinking about filmmaking and studying mm-hmm. filmmaking, it draws your attention to the fact that film is just a series of images. And yeah. it's like the craft itself is like pointing that out of like we are making we're telling a story by taking a bunch of pictures of models we've created slightly moving every frame. What's mind boggling about it to me is just the planning that has to go into that. The, mm-hmm. the, the technology that they use on this film to, I mean, there's amazing camera movements, uh, mm-hmm. amazing, you know, just ways that like you forget about it because you're just watching a movie and it's just shot beautifully. But it's like, wait a minute, that camera was moving <laughs> very slightly also every frame how the hell do you plan this out and make it look this smooth and perfect yeah my brain like literally can't process what i'm actually seeing like like (laughs) it's just processing Uh like i'm watching you know a cartoon or something like that it can't process like you are watching still frames that someone meticulously it's just first of all it's exhausting if you think about all the work that went into it but also just like if you don't know like if you haven't done stop motion yourself or whatever like you just can't process that that's actually what you're seeing but i also think that that's what that does give this movie a timelessness like you know talking about how it's sort of become even more popular over the past 10 years because it's not going to ever look like a 2009 movie it's always going to look like a movie that came out of itself (laughs) like it's just like from its own crazy time period unless you know like stop motion incredibly well like if you're extremely Mm -hmm. well versed you're like well you can see they did it this way because in 2015 they invented the blah 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 like no Uh (laughs) normal person Coraline's always gonna look like a totally timeless movie and I think that's great and there is something so whimsical and tactile about the experience of watching it where you know, you were kind of talking about the, the 3D presentation that they especially did for Coraline, which was incredible, you know, and, and they just achieved by putting cameras two cameras essentially right next to each other and, and photographing the models from slightly different angles. But there is this like, yeah, this 
feeling to it where you almost can touch the models it feels like or um, yeah the, the, the fabrics like, yeah. like everything is because it is all handcrafted i mean they i was watching some, some of the behind, behind the scenes and like they're making these tiny little costumes for the models <laughs> but like, it's, it's all mm-hmm. being done by hand with these tiny little stitches for the, the buttons it's it's really amazing like micro it's, it's all the things you do in a big film set like costume design but on this like micro level it's like so delicate and so tactile this is like the most twee little bit of trivia ever, but apparently there was a crew member who was specifically hired to knit tiny sweaters and like <laughs> knitted just all the tiny sweaters for the puppets and sometimes used knitting needles that were as thin as human hair. Oh my God. And was like, like <laughs> I don't even know how you would begin to do that. Um, Insane. But it was cool. Like Coraline actually, it feels like it signaled a new wave of interest in stop motion. But actually, it was already happening. The, the wave was sort of like already coming in. So Corpse Bride, if you think about that, was, was 2005. Mm-hmm. And then actually in 2009, there were several other pretty big stop motion animated movies that came out. Fantastic Mr. Fox was 2009. Mm. And I believe there was a big Wallace and Gromit movie that also came out in 2009. Uh, yeah. And then we have, you know, a lot of a lot of films kind of sort of those three different approaches where it's like claymation, something like Wallace and Gromit versus like, you know, Wes Anderson-y kind of stop motion because we have Isle of Dogs now and stuff. But then you have Laika and they're still doing really amazing, beautifully photographed and really interestingly like rendered and modeled stop motion that is these like, yeah, like, I don't know. I saw Kubo and that's the one I always think of. Kubo is mm. just so gorgeous. Mm. And it feels like it directly inherited something from Coraline. Yeah, Kubo definitely feels like a successor yeah. to Coraline. And what I think what's interesting about the Leica approach is that while it is primarily, you know, the actual craft is still mostly in the in the actual stop motion animation, mm-hmm. they do enhance it with CGI. Like there yeah. is There are effects that are added and so there is this nice blend where it's like you have this really slick version of uh, stop motion animation where it it has all the charm and the tactileness of these really actually handcrafted objects. But you can have some more of the magic of, you know, the ghosts and, mm-hmm. you know, people going through walls, things that that aren't possible with right. actual like physical objects. They're not afraid to do a little bit of blending there. And I love in Coraline when it kind of almost becomes like the other, you know, the mirror world is revealed almost be like a computer simulation, you know, the way that the world starts to fall apart into like white space and and cubism. It just, it's yeah, just that, that's such a fun combo because you've got the, like the low, like the low tech and the high tech together. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a specialty of Leica. You know, we were talking yesterday in a meeting about how when something is animated or something is is done a certain way like whatever the mode of storytelling is like is that actually adding to the narrative and i think Coraline, it's like literally these are doll people that she is meeting you know what i mean like if it was live action and if someone made a really good live action version of this we'd be like it of course it's live action you know but like having this version it just seems ridiculous that anyone would try to do it any other way because why would you not use literal dolls when you're talking about these like doll people uh with you know black eyes lifeless eyes like a doll's eyes she should have known better (laughs) if she had just seen jaws you know jaws could work as a stop motion film i think (laughs) like think about it like that'd be kind of cool like like in this like in the style of Coraline. (laughs) yeah wow i want to see that this episode is brought to you by shopify 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You know, it is the cool, like, meta thing, Brian, that really drew me to Coraline as an example of ancient forms, because while the filmmaking is also hearkening back to the essentially the theme it's sort of like a meta commentary on yeah we could have made this like very slick and very cgi and mm-hmm. like the most cutting edge version of animation available or even a blend of cgi <laughs> and i'm sorry i had to watch the alice in wonderlands tim burton's alice in wonderlands <laughs> that i was watching <laughs> yeah even something that's more than half animated but also has real people in it um you could have done it that way very easily right um and so i really love the sort of meta commentary here where, you know, Coraline's lesson is not to, you know, chase perfection essentially um, at the cost of what she already has or, you know, her, her family, her real parents. And so it was a really cool choice on Selleck's part to sort of echo the theme in the, in the filmmaking, as well as like retaining all of those elements, of course, which originated in Neil Gaiman's novel, the storytelling elements that we sort of get to talk about in the video. And it's a, it's a cool thing that, you know, as you already touched on, that it does make it feel timeless and and yeah. classic. And as as someone who's personally very excited about all the newest shiniest things <laughs> most of the time, so you loved the new Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> oh, God, I think that's one of two movies that I've fallen asleep in in the theater. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it is highlighting the risk that comes from mm-hmm. jumping on the bandwagon of whatever the newest thing is. Even if it's, you know, maybe right for your story, it's still, if it's, it's, if it's new, it's going to at some point not be new. Be new. And I think that's the weird thing that's happened with CG is that mm. the best CG that's possible in 1999 looks absolutely awful 20 years later, most of the time. And so I think that's, that's a thing that I uh, do appreciate about the movie and as a nice reminder as a person and filmmaker is that there are tried and true technologies and if you can use what's new to make what's already great even greater i think that's that's such a a powerful way to tell a story is to say like we're not going to ignore new things that have happened and pretend like you know everything was perfect 50 years ago or whatever we're going to take all the things that were already great and then we have these new tools to make them even better and draw your focus even more to the magic of this thing and that that is what Coraline does so well and why it's uh yeah just a technical feat and also as you're saying Trisha a that it, it works with the story and enhances the story and so it's doing all of those things all at once and that's really cool mm-hmm. I was going to say that like I think part of my initial falling in love with the movie was it felt like it had achieved the pinnacle of what stop motion animation could be mm. for me mm-hmm. like it was like this is like the the confidence with which it like used this technology and like it executed the story using this method felt like it was just like the skill level that Selleck had achieved as a director and and like as a as a company it just felt like you can't get better than this in this medium and it still holds up for me that way like i think i've enjoyed other like a 
uh, films, but this one, because of the aesthetic, the aesthetic serves the story so well, it feels like the most complete, like everything in here is how it should be. Uh, like this should be animated this way. Mm-hmm. And I think just a, one more thought I had based on some of Selleck's quotes about using stop motion. He, we, we left it out of the video, but part of his quote that we left out um, when he talked about how everybody wants newer, better, faster, you know, when selling a movie in the, in the United States, mm-hmm. he compared that to more of like a, like I said, a European sensibility. Other countries don't necessarily always value the latest and greatest the same way that kind of media in the United States do, does. Like, like there's yeah. more of an appreciation for ancient forms in other countries. I, I can feel that influence on him where he kind of almost identifies more with that European sensibility and even the concept art mm-hmm. for the movie was kind of inspired by this. It was like a Japanese artist who was like doing these kind of cool, like retro, um, almost like advertising agency, like uh, illustrations that had these elongated figures of like people in Paris. And so yeah, there's, there's definitely like a, like a romantic, whimsical, European, global kind of influence on the movie that I think, once again, like, it made sense for that to be done in a not cutting edge CG style, like that all that all those influences feel most at home in this handcrafted format. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to something that we had a few different conversations about when we were working on the video, which is at several times in the script, I think, of the video and just when we were discussing it, we called this a modern fairy tale. And I think it was Brian that was like, well, this isn't modern or like, what's the difference between a modern fairy tale and a fairy tale if other than like maybe it's set in quote unquote modern times. Mm -hmm. And I think that both the novel and Selleck's adaptation of it do a really good job of kind of creating a little bit of a time out of place uh, feeling where there is like a cell phone in it. Right. And like they're in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's like laptops and um, they're, you know, driving in the car or whatever, but there's not any, that technology doesn't really have any material effect on either the characters or the overall structure of the story. And feels like it doesn't encroach in any way on the magic where mm-hmm. it seems perfectly natural to Coraline, you know, because at first she's associating what's happening in the like other world, the mirror world as a dream. So she's like perfectly at peace with I just crawled through this door and like over here there's another family and they have buttons in their eyes and whatever. And so she just kind of writes that off as a dream. But to us, it doesn't feel the animation like sort of sews everything together into this like modern fairy tale canvas i guess that feels like it is one thing where the other world that is magical and this world that has technology but doesn't really need to have technology those kind those two things coexist in harmony for sure yeah i think i think there's multiple levels of what is modern or or not which is mm. this story is not terribly different if you say it's 1602 and Coraline is you know going through the same stuff living in the house and that kind of thing then maybe a a movie like a fairy tale where technology and stuff is actually part of the of the premise Um, Mm -hmm. but where I think Coraline succeeds as a as a quote-unquote modern fairy tale is the fact that because it's set in modern times you can look at her as yourself you can picture yourself going off and and 
you know, finding this weird house and living in it and then going on these adventures. Whereas if it took place 300 years ago, it wouldn't have quite as, as immediate, you wouldn't have quite as immediate connection with it, probably. She's not walking around speaking the way that the ghost children do. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Like, Thou art. Save us, mistress. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. And ate up our lives. <laughs> it is interesting that it does capture this kind of generically modern tone and not generically in a bad way, but as yeah. you're saying, it's, it's there is technology he is using. You know, the father is writing his plant articles. They're like plant bloggers. <laughs> they Her parents write for a gardening magazine. Yeah. You know, it's a computer. It's not a completely modern computer, but it's not not a modern computer. And like you're saying, the cell phone exists, but isn't. I don't know. They, they managed to capture this kind of blanket uh, idea of a familiar world that has technology that is familiar to us without it being set in any specific time also that was one of the first things i was mm-hmm. trying to figure out when watching it was when what when year is this place <laughs> and when was the book written and it was it meant to be this or that kind of reminded me of it follows which i never mm, finished yeah. watching uh, but one of the things i really <laughs> liked about it is that it had this weird relationship with technology and i had no idea when it was set and slowly realized it wasn't set in a when that is you know related to us i love it follows you should finish it i mean i know what happens we'll talk about that at some <laughs> later. it is cool how that does lend itself as you guys are saying to this sort of modern fairy tale feeling where it's it's not so specific that you have to look at it with the baggage of certain expectations right but it's familiar enough that, like you're saying, Brent, like you can see yourself as the person or as existing in this world also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's just enough sort of modernity to make it clear that it's set in some vague present day-ness, but without being so specific that it's like, well, that's clearly and like the computer was old in 2009. <laughs> like that was very clearly a choice. I think like Scott Pilgrim kind of does that, like, mm-hmm. it, you know, this sort mm-hmm. of like it's present day, but like things don't work the way they do in your world. So don't worry about it. And I think that that kind of can give something a, a a charm, but also, like you said, not have it be bogged down in a certain like this is what a 2012 phone that is or whatever, you know? Yeah. Right. Just kind of switching subjects to the the creepiness of the film, uh, because yeah. I do feel like that mm-hmm. is what most people like say about Coraline is like it scarred them a little bit as a child or like it mm-hmm. it was like a little it got under their skin in a way that maybe even Nightmare Before Christmas didn't. Um, and I think the even from the opening credits sequence, the film is announcing oh my gosh, that yeah. it's comfortable with like fairly disturbing imagery. Like this sequence of this doll being yeah. taken apart and like disemboweled basically and then sewn yep. back together. It's like right out of like a nightmare. And it's it's such a beautiful opening sequence uh, the music has that kind of like creepy whimsicalness to it and uh, i feel like the movie announces right out the gate that it's gonna be this different kind of quote-unquote kids movie it's 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 gonna be a little more artistic it's gonna be a little more adult in its sensibilities honestly and i think that continues throughout the film where like as the world devolves, we talk about in the kind of grotesque section of the video, the way like Mr. Bobinski moves mm-hmm. when he becomes like a husk <laughs> of himself mm-hmm. is like genuinely skin crawling. And yes, uh, you know, the, the way the other mother eventually becomes essentially this kind of like spider person, um, you know, all of it 
becomes real nightmare fodder. And I, and I, I also really appreciate that. And, and maybe one thing that helped the movie go all the way to those kind of disturbing places was the fact that it's a focus features production. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't a Disney movie. It wasn't right. trying to play it safe. It was this kind of indie film company focus features at the time. And I think it allowed it to be this kind of what we talked about with Stranger Things. You know, Stranger Things is this thing that it has kids as the protagonist, and yet it can be very violent and very disturbing. And I think Coraline isn't as violent or as gory or anything, but it has some pretty disturbing stuff in it. And I like movies that are able to be at the intersection. And, you know, it, it reminds me of those movies that scarred us as kids. You know, I, yeah. I was thinking about like... <laughs> Random movies like like Fern Gully, oh, Fern yeah. Gully, like the oil monster thing at <laughs> mm-hmm. the end. I remember like really freaked Tim me out. Tim Curry, yeah, Tim Curry, <laughs> so good. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I, I think there's something special about like that kind of quote unquote kids movie. Like I appreciate that I was scarred a little bit as a child by these things. Definitely, it's really wise from an adaptation point of view. What you're talking about, Alex, with the opening sequence, you have to have foreshadowing, basically. Right. Because otherwise, the first act of this movie, Coraline doesn't have a goal. So you're not really sure what the movie is or would be about. She's wandering around. She's talking to her neighbors. Right. You you know, she's just kind of exploring. But and there's, you know, this sort of little I don't know. They set up this little sort of prologue or I don't even know what it is. Expository scene, really, where she meets YB and she's like, here's the well and here's the creepiness about the house and Mm. my grandmother doesn't rent to families with children because mysterious reasons but still without a goal you'd have no engine driving the story if you didn't have that opening like title sequence prologue and i think in addition to giving us that grotesque and very upsetting imagery that you're talking about which i agree i find parts like little moments of that prologue where the doll is being sewn by the needle hands i find some of that kind of hard to watch Mm -hmm. The one shot where it's like a close up of the button and then the needle comes from underneath. Yes. Like you don't know there's going to be a needle until it's like in your face. Or the one that gets me is the um, where she like rips the seams on the mouth, mm-hmm. which yeah. I really strongly <laughs> dislike. But yeah, it, it provides that curiosity that helps keep the audience engaged. Right. And in the book, you don't really have that. Obviously, you don't have a title sequence for the book. But in the book, Coraline, there's foreshadowing in um the mice basically the mice actually sing in the book Mm -hmm. and she can hear them singing when she goes to bed at night creepy songs (laughs) which i don't like that (laughs) (laughs) i don't like it either and neither do my students when they read the book (laughs) but the children's choir that you mentioned alex that is singing in a nonsense language that's another Mm, thing that is unsettling about that title sequence that is a nonsense language and the fact that you can't immediately identify it as a language, you're like, what language is that? And you're listening for words. You can't hear words. Mm-hmm. The movement of the music is still taking you on a journey. It creates that something terrible is going to happen to Coraline and we don't know what. And that kind of keeps us watching in the way that, yeah, like, I don't know. It really reminds me of the opening scene of The Shining where Jack doesn't necessarily have a huge goal except to write his novel in The Shining. But because of this foreshadowing when he we know that something is going to go terribly wrong. Right. Blood blood hallways are coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, when your movie opens up with just like this long helicopter shot of a car and you just hear like, wah, 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 wah. it's like, <laughs> that's Kubrick's way of being like, we're just going to show you a family chatting. <laughs> yeah, but like there's, The Shining is coming. Just wait. Speaking of how the movie sort of gets creepy and stuff, the, the 
use of color in this movie, I think, is oh, really yeah. outstanding because you have the very obvious use, which is that her world is very dull, dull colors. You know, it's all sort of grays and stuff. And then when she goes into the mirror world, it's very colorful and these sort of like pastels and that kind of thing. The tunnel. But then what I find. So cool. mm-hmm. Oh, sure. The tunnel itself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like the tunnel. But then what I think, you know, and of course, that really helps to show why this other world is so exciting. It's like just you as a viewer are are more engaged with this more colorful world and stuff. But then what I think is really fascinating is then there's like two more color schemes that come in in the second half of the movie after the midpoint where you realize that the other world is is creepy and stuff. Then it becomes it's like a bright version of dull. Like it becomes, oh, or, or I guess a dull version of bright because it's still the same like bright tones, <laughs> yeah. but in a very dulled way, like with the ghosts and all that kind of stuff. And then when you have the epilogue of the movie, now it's sort of the same dull tones we're used to, but a very bright version of them. And it's like you can spot four different color palettes mm-hmm. in a really fascinating way. That's like, it, it's, yeah, it's really impressive, but it just works so well to sort of track where we are emotionally in the story uh because like oh everything is ugly here but it's pretty here okay now the pretty stuff is starting to get weird and gross and everything's falling apart and then now we're back in happy world which is now brighter than it was before it's just yeah i think it's really impressive i have the imdb photo gallery for Coraline up because i'm Mm. just searching through and you can just by glancing at the pictures from the color and the the dullness you you know exactly where you are in the film yeah yeah part of what has made this film so rewatchable for me over the years is that attention to detail because yeah even like the in the costumes like the other mother she slowly becomes more spider-like even before she gets like tall mm-hmm. like her outfit becomes this kind of like a dotted black and white dress with like a black widow spider like red it has a bustle in the back yeah that's really interesting and there's just so many little details like that that are just you just the amount of like love and care that went into every frame of the movie is there and mm-hmm. and it, and you can tell that like henry Selleck and all the artists that created it love the source material and like we're having a lot of fun with like foreshadowing and just you know just doing as much as they could with the backdrops with the costumes with the props to like you make it a rewatchable film in that way where it's not just a one-dimensional viewing experience you can find new details in the third fourth watch Mm -hmm. well and i think that's one of the cool things about the mode of storytelling that's that's happening here is where if you're going to have a story where you're going to be working very intensely on literally every frame that you are putting on screen. It kind of invites you and maybe forces you in some ways to really think about what you're going to do. Because you know, one of right. the animators says in the making of, there's no going back. Like once the camera is set up and you start, you have to go forth and you just have to be confident and make it work because it takes so much time to do each shot that there isn't really a chance to redo things. And so I think it, it forces you to, I would imagine, to do that kind of prep work to consider all the all the design choices, all the little things, make sure the story beat that you're talking about is mm-hmm. needs to be communicated extremely clearly. So it's I think that's why it's another reason if you're a filmmaker and you want to learn filmmaking techniques, every shot had to be thought about 
infinitely <laughs> yeah because mm -hmm. it has to be very purposeful mm -hmm. and so you can look at every shot and really think about what is this doing to tell the story and I, yeah i think it's a, a really great source for just learning filmmaking language and techniques because of that that the work that got, went into it and Coraline is also a really great example even though it is borrowing from these ancient forms that we tend to think of as being archetypal and translatable into a variety of different places and times. Something I think that we don't often remember about fairy tales or these other ancient forms is that they themselves are actually very specific. And Coraline also has this wonderful specificity to it. Like we mentioned earlier that her parents work for like a gardening magazine. And we're like, <laughs> that's oddly specific. Of course it is. But in the same way, Think about, for example, Cinderella. There's some very specific story elements that you need to have Cinderella or to make it work or that end up becoming sort of the memorable ingredients in what makes Cinderella Cinderella. So you have to have the stepmother. You have to have the evil stepsisters, the two evil stepsisters. There has to be kind of that number exactly. And then you have to have like the pumpkin that becomes the coach and you have to have the mice that become the footmen. The specificity of the ideas in the fairy tale are kind of what give them their hook. And I think that Coraline is so awesome at that. And it's a really, really good adaptation of the book to actually make a lot of that stuff even more specific. So like in the book, her parents do work for a gardening magazine and everything. And the house itself is very similar in the movie to the way that it's being described in the book. And the specificity of the house is what makes Coraline kind of what it is, where it's this old Victorian house that's been broken up into four different flats. And three of them have been let, you know, the the attic and then one side of the main house and then the basement. All of those have been let. And then there's an empty flat on the other side. There's something very specific about the construction of this apartment complex that wouldn't work if it were or just wouldn't be as iconic or capture our imagination in quite the same way if it weren't exactly that. And mm -hmm. then the the even greater specifics of the tiny door in the side of the drawing room wall that has the, the big black key that you mm. need to open it and you have to keep it locked and there's only one key, right? There's all of these really specific rules that come together to make a fairy tale what it is. And Coraline is really great at that. Yeah, I think that if you... You know, if you think about shows or movies where people live in apartments and stuff, it's usually like you, you can hear them knocking on the walls or the floor and like you open your door and their door is right across the hall and that kind of thing. And I think that that would, in that regard, Coraline, the separation between mm -hmm. these three apartments is nice because it makes you feel more alone. It makes her apartment feel um, right. like it's its own place. And when she wants to go to the basement or wants to go to the attic, she has to like go outside and walk around the building and go upstairs like it adds a distance there which i think helps it helps you feel um not safe i guess as mm -hmm. you know as you could if you could just like go open the door and your neighbor's right across the hall yeah on the topic of specificity i also really appreciate the like oregonness of it all because Leica <laughs> is based in oregon yeah and i think mm. this is like i don't know if it's meant to take place in ashland uh, oregon which has like a Shakespeare festival mm -hmm. and they have those two little Shakespeare guys mm -hmm. in, the, in the downtown area. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of like love and 
knowing what it's like to live in Oregon in the winter when it's like cloudy and rainy and muddy and kind of like sad outside. And I, I can feel a lot of like specific love and knowing what it's like to be in this place, which is cool because you, you don't often see like like a random house in Oregon as like mm-hmm. as like the place that a movie is set. Mm-hmm. There's a quirkiness to who would be living in this place right. that comes out in the characters. And the yeah. scenery is so gorgeous too. Like oh, just yeah. anytime you're outside, you can see into the distance, which obviously in stop motion mm. takes a lot of work to to give that feeling. Mm-hmm. When and I like that there's a complexity that comes from that specificity also. So yes. like you were saying, Brian, before, you know, it is dull in her real world, but it's not like repulsively dull. It's no. not completely monotone. It looks right. like maybe it's just a cloudy day in Oregon kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And Coraline wants to go outside and wants to play in the rain. So it's not like, it's not so black and white that it, you know, it renders you not having to think about anything. It's, there is nuance in there and it's all the things are doing more than one thing at any given time, which I think pulls you in or pulls me in anyway and doesn't make me just turn off my brain. Right. I also just want to point out that Coraline is colorful in the dull world. Mm-hmm. Yes. The blue so hair. Like she has, yeah, she has this yellow, blue, and pink, and she doesn't sort of match her world. She matches the mirror world better. And I just think, again, that's, yeah, no, I agree with you, Michael. It's not that it's boring. It's just that the right. color scheme is, is made right. of mostly monochromatic colors. Well, it's boring enough. And I think that's the point is that going back to the specificity, her relationship with her real life parents needs to be just unhappy enough right Right. like if if her relationship with her parents was really like terrible or like she's a total brat and they're just like mean to her then you don't have a way to redeem it it has to be it has to have this light touch of they are not you know Coraline feels unappreciated and unseen but in a way that doesn't feel like she's being abused, right? You right. have to have right. this kind of, again, very specific where the parents are working. Coraline is very independent. So it doesn't seem like she needs a lot of their attention, but she wants their attention in a very, again, very specific way. The scene where she begs her mother to open the the door in the wall is a really great example of that, where her mom, to me, reads as being pretty mean where she's like, if I do this for you, will you leave me alone, Mm -hmm. basically? But then Coraline's response to that is like this half-joking, like, puppy dog face, where she's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I totally will. You know, (laughs) and and we can tell that Coraline's feelings aren't hurt, but there is that sort of, like, disconnect there where the mom is just cold, and Coraline, you know, they aren't fighting, but they're also not getting along. It's really wisely done it hits that pitch perfect Coraline is unhappy but not problematically so yeah yeah exactly she's unhappy enough yeah that the other world would be really appealing she doesn't feel unloved I think is is maybe like that's where you could go too far where Mm -hmm. it then starts to feel like oh she doesn't need to get out of here like her parents don't love her right and I think it never quite goes that far where there is as you're saying they're mean enough or frustrated enough that you get why she would see the appeal of this other place but it's not like she's going to this other place so that she can be loved it's that she wants like attention and the food that she likes and to play Mm -hmm. games and things right well and that's again with the specificity the way that she measures love 
you know, is with, she doesn't want to eat her dad's weird cooking. She would right. rather have like a frozen pizza. Um, and her mom doesn't cook at all, apparently. So like the food ends up becoming a, a real symbol of how Coraline feels seen and appreciated or not. In the same with, you know, she wants to go in the garden. Well, that creates mud. And then in the other world, it's like, we love mud here, right? Mud is welcome on this side. It's very like kid brain how you. Yeah, it's very, it's very kid brain. I love it. Measure how your parents care about you. Or like, I just wanted these gloves and they won't even buy me the gloves I want. But yeah, it, it's sharply observed in that way. It's it's just really well done. Something else that I was struck by watching it again. I, I thought of this because of our Ratatouille episode we did uh, on Patreon. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked about the animation for the animals and and the mm-hmm. way the way that they animated the rats to be at times very rat like and kind of screwing around and other times like dog like and really likable and I just I love the cat animation in this oh my film. gosh the way they yes. captured like the, so good the mm-hmm. catness of the cat <laughs> <laughs> and then Keith David's voice on top of all that uh-huh. so like, good. what a brilliant casting choice I just I love the cat character and everything about it well for me it's the tail because that's how you know what cats are thinking is you watch the tail and how the tail is moving and uh-huh. I was able to like look at what the tail was doing and be like oh this cat it's a little upset right now or it's kind of excited or it, it doesn't feel good about what's happening but it's not going to stop you like there was so much conveyed in the tail and that was just really really impressive we should have tails i think that would help <laughs> us communicate <laughs> as a species a lot a lot better some of the scenes that have really struck me is like the scene where he's waking her up when she's in bed and there's, mm-hmm. there's that like that very specific like purring sound and like the way the paws like mm-hmm. just yeah. kind of like patting her cat taps and, and the whole subreddit <laughs> called cat taps it's right. great <laughs> And, and, and like, and when it communicates with her in the real world, it has to be nonverbal. And there's this very subtle way that it like kind of closes its eyes and kind of nods, but like not enough to like, maybe you're just interpreting a cat doing something. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think, yeah, just the, that's another one of the things that um, it was impressive to me in Ratatouille and almost even more impressive to me in a stop motion animation, because, you know, like you said, Michael, there's just this forward momentum. Like you start a scene and you have to just keep going and hope your frame by frame animation is getting it right. And to get something so specific, so right is crazy because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's rare to see a cat animated in such a way that captures the essence of of a cat. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I mean, I think they've I think a lot of different animations have done. I don't know. I, I like watching cats and I feel like there there are certain not the movie. <laughs> Let it be known. Michael <laughs> likes watching cats. Yes. I'm going to get a clip of that. Uh, yeah. I like watching cats. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Lessons from the Screenplay. Let's take a look at cats. <laughs> but but I think what, what you're highlighting here is interesting because there are CG animated cats um, and lots of animals, and lots of different things. Again, not the movie Cats. <laughs> Because oh they're also CG animated. They are. Yes. Human faces. You can animate animals in CG in very convincing, authentic ways. You know, you can, you know, all forms of animation can can capture these things. But yes. there, there is this, this difference that you're pointing out where if you're doing something on a computer, you have the luxury of going back and forth and changing keyframes at the beginning or later. And you, you can, you can revise perfect it, it in, yeah. a, in a way that you can't. Um, you know, it's almost like a live performance versus mm-hmm. a film that gets edited. Like you just have this one 
chance to do this performance, whereas CG animation is a different kind of performance. And it's just it's interesting to see those differences kind of laid bare in, in that comparison. Right. I, I think also one of the reasons Coraline feels so impressive mm-hmm. as a stop motion film is those nuances and those subtle things that you're talking about were like, oh, look how the cat moves and stuff. Because if you think we haven't talked about Aardman at all, uh, you know, Chicken Run and Wallace and Gromit, oh, yeah. like those guys. Mm-hmm. But if you look at an Aardman movie or a Wes Anderson stop motion, like they lean into the stop motion. Everything mm-hmm. feels sort of off and like, mm. like sort of what we think of with like the claymation of like the 90s, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And and there's nothing wrong with that, but they're very purposefully trying to make something that feels like this stop motion thing. And I think what's so impressive about Coraline is that it almost feels like it could be CG. Like, a, a, you right. know, it, it's so fluid and stuff uh, to a certain point where it's almost like, well, it would have been a lot easier to, but okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But of course, then you lose that sort of tactile nature that we're talking about where you feel like you can like reach out and touch the fabrics and stuff, you know. But I think that that's what makes it such an impressive stop motion film is that it it, it gets so surprisingly close to feeling like real movement. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that there's movies like Lego movie that is kind of this weird blend where it's CG that's mm-hmm. mimicking a stop motion right. feel. And yeah, it is just interesting all the different variations on animation and the different um, connotations and associations we have with them and how they can kind of get blended in these new ways that is that is fun just looking at i i love the blending i think i think that Mm. is such a cool thing that is accessible now to filmmakers the idea you can you can use an older art form like stop motion but enhance it with cgi and make this kind of like you can't really place what it is anymore. It's this magical combo of all the technologies. Yeah. Yeah. Really quick. Am I weird in that I don't find Coraline that creepy? And as the movie goes further along, it gets less creepy to me. Okay. But what do you think about the actresses in their, the other versions of the actresses with their button eyes when they're doing their burlesque show? (laughs) Yes. Okay. No, that is the height of unsettled feeling for me <laughs> and and even watching it this time that was the time that my girlfriend was turned and was like is this movie for kids like yeah. what's ha- like what's happening what's happening <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like the the feel that you have there like that's the most potent moment i feel like of the grotesque of oh i don't definitely. know who this is for yeah. and what i'm supposed <laughs> to be feeling about this it's like, even if the breasts are gigantic, if you only show, you know, 90% of them, then it's fine. It's still PG. Right. Everything's like mermaid, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not a real person. Oh, my gosh. It was always the part where my students were the most like, what? Uh-huh. Like, we don't like this. And they're, they're actually less disturbed after the actresses unzip their skin right. and like jump out because they're right. less grotesque. Right. Uh-huh. They're actually becoming less grotesque. The act of unzipping their skin and jumping out to do a trapeze show is less upsetting than <laughs> the grotesque forms that the neighbors sort of already had. Those two actresses sort of already had. And I think that's where Selleck did a really good job where just you don't want the stop motion animation or any animation, an animated adaptation of a book to feel gimmicky like you're doing something just for like this would be a cool animation thing 
um, but you feel like it's not lending anything to the story. And I think that Selleck walks the line a little bit, uh, especially in that sequence and with the 500 stop motion animated jumping mice where I'm just like, right. <laughs> I get so exhausted watching that. This is clearly just cool. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, stop. You didn't have to do this. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it is. It still is doing something in the story. And the grotesque right. imagery is still evoking, I think, a really strong reaction there. Yeah. Well, definitely. And I think what's cool is there's a nice symmetry with Mr. Babinski's show, which feels like this is the pinnacle of mirror world like this. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to live here forever? This is awesome. How cool. There's a circus in your attic. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then right before the midpoint, right before the you're going to mm -hmm. sew buttons in your eyes thing is this burlesque show, which is sort of like, I mean, literally you have the unzipping and all that kind of stuff. Like everything is starting to feel wrong. The button dogs are in the audience and everything mm -hmm. is bizarre and i just think it's cool to sort of show these the, use the neighbors as the sort of way and then of course the symmetry is completed then with the second mr bavinsky <laughs> sequence where he is like made right. up of rats and it's like now this is the most awful things can be in terms of like sort of falling apart and being and the second actresses when they're like this like candy monster thing you know right i i don't know if those images are like scarier but i do think the film with its sound design it, like in a theater mm -hmm. those moments were like scare mm -hmm. moments you know like right. when when they burst out of the like candy wrapper and are screaming like it, it's there are like jump scares in this movie that i didn't expect definitely right see mr popinski is a rat Man, I liked him the most. Wait, know. wait. The way he was, but the way he's like slinking around. That's yeah, cool. I don't know. Okay. There's a difference between liking it and disliking it and, you know, understanding that it is more screwed Creepy. up than. Yeah. Yes. See, it doesn't feel more screwed up to me, but. Because the way he like, the way he like moves and is like jiggling. Yeah. It's like kind of like smoother and cool. I don't know. <laughs> I like Dislike. And, and, and you also like the other mother when she becomes more what we were calling grotesque in the video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like she looks cool. More spider-like. Yeah, she looks cool. I think I think that she's played by Terry Hatcher, maybe plays a little bit of a role in it. Because uh -huh. yeah. in Terry Hatcher played Lewis and Lewis and Clark, the Hold terrible on. Superman. Hold on. Yes. She played, she, Hold on. She played who? Lives. She played who? Lois. 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 What did I? Oh, Lewis. Yeah. You said Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> She'd make a great Lewis from Lewis and Clark, but that's a whole different, that's a whole other thing. Also, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Coraline. Brian, you want to start us off? Uh, yeah, we touched on it with, um, as we were talking about the parents being not abusive, but sort of showing this, this just sort of almost carelessness, this neglect for Coraline. And I think that I really appreciate when a story sells why a character is unhappy, why they would take or or do this thing that we wouldn't think they would do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you say like, oh, a little girl like finds a door to another place and wants to like leave her family and go live there. Well, then it sounds like she just sounds like a jerk, you know, but like the movie does a lot of work to establish, first mm -hmm. of all, just like I said, with the colors and everything, but also just she really just feels unhappy and lost and and not really paid attention to and that kind of thing so as soon as she steps through this door and there is actually a colorful caring sort of warm respectful family you buy why this is attractive to her you know and i mm -hmm. think that 
there's too many it's just very annoying in movies when it's like why would you be with your boyfriend <laughs> or like why would you right. do yeah. this thing like it's just doesn't make any sense and i think that Coraline just does a really good job of selling making us feel what she feels such that when she does this thing that feels sort of wrong it makes perfect sense yeah yeah it really reminded me of the wizard of oz in a variety mm-hmm. of ways where mm. you get you know Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz wants to go somewhere. And so that's kind of the tension of like, she doesn't want to be on the farm and everything. But actually, you know, very similarly to the Wizard of Oz, you've talked about the color palette and talked about the, mm-hmm. you know, mirroring of the other worlds where you have the same actors, you know, playing the farmhands and then playing like her friends in the other world, which is, you know, in some ways a very similar kind of Alice in Wonderlandy story. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think that Coraline is a great example of that. Yeah, for sure. And Wizard of Oz also using the medium of its time to go mm-hmm. from black and white right. to color, mm-hmm. obviously, famously. Yeah, that is, that's really interesting. One of the things I miss most about going to see movies in actual theaters are the conversations that happen afterward when I get to process the experience with my best, nerdiest film friends. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily for us, we have each other and we get to have these conversations every week here on Beyond the Screenplay. So if you also have a group of friends that you miss going to the movies with, get them in on our conversations by sharing Beyond the Screenplay. Or better yet, literally get in our conversations by joining us on Patreon. Our $10 subscribers get access to our monthly film club where you can hang out with the whole LTS team and we have those movie theater lobby conversations every month. So share the podcast. We hope to see you on the chat and back to the show. I miss soft pretzels. popcorn. (laughs) Trisha, what about you? Lessons from Coraline. I want to call out a couple of things that I really admire about the adaptation here. And one is the one that most people talk about when they have read the are familiar with the book and then they see the movie, which is the addition of the character of YB because mm. YB is not in the book at all. Um, and it is just a really smart, basic call, but seems like such a huge deal to add a character mm-hmm. because you have this, you know, constellation of characters that are interacting in really specific ways already in the book. So the idea of throwing one more in there in the movie adaptation at first, makes you go wait hang on but you really do need it and it's a really simple and elegant solution because in the book Coraline can walk around and we can read what she's thinking Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is what we do when we read the book but you can't do that in a movie she would just be walking around talking to herself pretty much which is what Henry Selick said you know he's like I didn't know what to do with the fact that she's mostly by herself in the book and so giving her somebody to talk to and then using YB very wisely as an expository device, which he basically is, but he does, you know, have a personality. Um, and there is like conflict there kind of where the potential, you know, for Coraline to have a friend in her new town is like, makes you invested in that. It seems like a radical solution to add a whole extra character out that you just made up out of nothing to a beloved children's text. Mm -hmm. But it's really, really smart screenwriting. It just is a good translation technique. Brian? Yeah, I, I think that that is um, something you find a lot in adaptation is like, well, right. the book is just telling me what this character is thinking. So like now when we make it to a movie, we have to we find have to vocalize. some way. Right. And a lot of times it's adding a new character or enhancing a character who's already in the book, but making them there more often or something. Or you just have to find other filmmaking screenwriting ways to tell us what a character is thinking without being able to say like, you know, or you just have like Alec Baldwin narrate, you know, and then, <laughs> right. and then he thought this. Right. Like, yeah. And the flip side of it is one of my other favorite choices when it comes to the adaptation, 
which is to not have Coraline say some of the like longer pieces that she says in the book. So Mm. she starts, she actually does talk to herself a decent amount in the book, but she also talks out loud to the cat quite a bit when she's in the regular world. And of course it doesn't answer her um, vocally. And I, I respect the choice not to have her do that too much. But in the book, there's a wonderful monologue when Coraline is going into the other world for the final time where she knows she's going back to confront the other mother. And it's as she's making her way between the two worlds and the cat is going with her. She starts telling a story to the cat in the book about a time that her father saved her when she was really little. She tells this, it's like a long monologue. She tells this story to the cat of like, we were walking in this ravine and my dad told me to run away all of a sudden. And I knew that I really needed to run away. So I ran and it turns out there was like a a beehive. And so he stayed behind and let himself get stung by bees so I could get away and not get stung. Mm. And then he had to go back the next day to get his glasses. And he told me that he wasn't scared the first time when he was getting stung by bees because he knew he was doing it to save me. But he was scared the next day when he had to go back and get his glasses because he knew exactly how dangerous it was. And she delivers this whole long thing to the cat. And then the cat goes, so is, you know, at that point, they're like through the tunnel so the cat can talk again. And the cat responds something like, so you're going to save your parents because your dad once saved you from bees. And Coraline goes, don't be ridiculous. I'm going to save them because they're my parents. Mm. <laughs> and it's it's just a wonderful monologue. Yeah. And I would have written it into the movie in a heartbeat, but you don't need it. You do need it in the book because there's so much visually that can't be conveyed about Coraline's relationship with her parents. But in the movie, you do such a good job. If you can really capture that relationship, you don't need that monologue, even though it's an awesome monologue. Mm -hmm. So vocalizing what needs to be vocalized and knowing when to cut things, even if they're awesome, that's kind of what adaptation is at its best. And just cheers to Henry Selick. He did a fantastic job here. Yeah. And a skill that all writers should have, of like mm-hmm. the, knowing the discipline of when, when to when cut to your cut. favorite monologue. Yes, yeah. exactly. Alex, what about you? Lessons? Yeah, I, mean, I think watching the film again, you know, it reminded me that the movie, you know, it's it's doesn't have the feeling of like a perfect Pixar film. Like I think there's a lot of Pixar yeah. films mm-hmm. that feel perfect, like on a story level, they're airtight. You know, there's nothing mm-hmm. that should be taken away or put in like the, everything exactly where it should be and it's it's just this perfect ball of goodness and Coraline feels a little messier you know it, it, it had the pace is kind of slow at times there's these there's these detours into just kind of whimsical seemingly kind of like n- unnecessary set pieces and mm. I think my lesson is that if you are doing something this uh technically and artistically beautiful and if there's there's an integrity at the core of the film, I I appreciate like I I you've earned my like respect to like just revel in it for a little bit. And I think mm-hmm. I appreciate I appreciate I don't know if it's a lesson that could be applied universally at all, but I think uh, for this kind of movie, part of that quote unquote European sensibility is I think a little bit less of the like American perfectionism and yeah. a bit more of the feeling of just reveling in the art of it all. And I, and I really, I, I love seeing a movie that uh, seems to be just enjoying the art of it. And 
takes little detours just for fun. Um, so I don't know what the lesson is, but I, I like that in this movie. It doesn't feel edited down to within an inch of its life, mm, which I think right. is what we always tend to do. Like, what else can we cut just for the sake of cutting it out? Mm, right. And it doesn't always do that in Coraline. Yeah. And like, because of that, the movie does drag at some points and it, it does feel a little bit like indulgent. Um, but once again, if you're into the look of it, if you're into the art of it, I'm okay with those extra indulgent moments mm-hmm. because I'm just enjoying like soaking it all in. So yeah, there's there's something there about, you know, maybe the tightest, most uh, efficient version of a thing isn't always necessarily necessary if you're doing this other thing on top of the usual, like, let's get to the point, three-act structure. You're also just playing with yeah. an animation form. Like, I'm okay just looking at that for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, and that it, I think it speaks again to the mode of the storytelling and part of the choice to make it stop motion is to, you know, it is rough around the edges as a technique. And so I think that that expectation is there where, you, as we were talking about earlier, it can't be perfect in the way that right. a CG animated thing, mm-hmm. you can control every single pixel that's on screen if you wanted to. So it, yeah. it kind of just comes with the territory. And, and I think that those choices, as we've talked about, work for the audience just for the fun of seeing it and work for the story and the world that it's creating. Mm-hmm. And actually I think some of the imperfection is part of the charm. Like there's sometimes like the timing of of an action or like a a line delivery isn't quite like the most slick well edited perfect version of itself, but like it kind of feels lovely because it doesn't feel like there's this like you know David Fincher Mm-hmm. Or like computer animated control of it all. Like it feels a little bit out of control. Like they, you know, we're we are on this ride with this like special stop motion thing, and it's not going to be perfectly perfect. And I, I like it. Mm-hmm. Michael, you mentioned it earlier, uh, Trisha. Foreshadowing. Watching mm-hmm. it again recently, that was something that struck me as you were talking about opening the film with the doll making sequence and kind of just in general all the the tonal things that are signaling to the audience something is going to happen like there's something a little creepy a little scary that's just around the corner and we're we're getting there and some of it's even in the way YB is revealed it's kind of like a scare and there's a yeah mm-hmm. you know the well and like the stories about the well and this place is sort of like setting up like bad things are coming and it, it just felt like a really elegant use of foreshadowing in both those kind of bigger ways and even just tiny things where you know watching it again when the neighbors read her tea leaves mm-hmm. and she says there's a, a special hand in your future mm. uh and then you see the tapping of um, the other mother's hand multiple times so little things like that that feel like they are doing more than simply being easter eggs or like right. neat but they are introducing imagery and associations mm. subconsciously to the audience i think that's my favorite kind of foreshadowing is that it's not there just to be neat but it's a, a signal i think also of a thoroughly thought out film um like mm-hmm. i'm reminded of the paul thomas anderson quote that i've i think i've talked about before but writing is like ironing you move forward and then go back until you you smooth things out mm-hmm. and i think this kind of artful disciplined foreshadowing is a signal that this is a story that has been well ironed and yes. so I, I just i liked that a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. phantom thread makes so much more sense now i know right <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Cats. <laughs> Why don't I go around and say what we've been watching recently? Uh, reverse order. Alex, what have you been watching? So I'm going to use a video game because it felt like a movie or something, which I just finished playing finally The Last of Us Part 2. And I'm not going to say too much because all of us boys in the story mode Slack channel are going to have a conversation <laughs> about this game very soon. Um, they've been waiting for me to finish playing it. But I, I will just say that it was one of the more powerful and interesting video game experiences I've ever had. And part of the power was just how advanced the narrative storytelling has become within mm -hmm. this medium. Like Naughty Dog, the developer... Um, Neil Druckmann, the director, like they really have taken it to a next level. You know, I, I've never felt so immersed in like a cinematic experience in a video game as I think I felt during The Last of Us Part Two. And it's a very challenging game, both like from a gameplay perspective, but also like thematically and um, really put me through a lot of intense emotions and took me on a really interesting journey. So I, I really respect it. I think it's a really amazing work of art. You know, it's controversial. It's definitely not like a crowd pleaser, but I think that I like those movies a lot of times. And I think, you know, I remember there's a movie that I saw at Sundance in 2011. It was uh, one of Denis Villeneuve's early films, um, On Sunday or Incendies. And uh, I, we probably told the story before, but I thought it was the best film I saw at Sundance that year. I took Michael and a bunch of other people to go see it when it came out in theaters. I'm like, this is like the movie. And it's a very dark movie. It's a very feel bad movie. It's about <laughs> cycles of violence and, you know, revenge and how everything ends badly for everybody. And uh, I just thought it was an amazing film about those themes. But it, it's, you know, it's a it's a feel bad movie. And, you know, like, I also love Prisoners, another one of Denis Villeneuve's movies. Mm -hmm. Very feel bad movie. But when it feels like it's thematically doing something interesting with this unsettling content uh, i'm down for it and i think last of us part two met that you know benchmark for me so even though it was not a pleasant experience for much of the ride i appreciated it a lot nice uh awesome uh trisha what have you been watching so i watched a documentary that has just been released on apple tv so it came out in 2020 uh but it, it actually won the grand jury documentary prize at sundance this past year it's called boy state and it is it made me think of you so much alex because i think you'd find it so interesting but it's about so every year the american legion um, I think in just about every state has this program where they bring together youths, like mostly 17 year olds from around the state. And they have like a summer camp kind of that's also like a mock government kind of thing. And so uh, and they separate the boys and girls. So they do girls state and then they do boys state. Oh, fascinating. More than a thousand in this particular documentary, which is about the 2018 boys state camp in texas um and it's like 1217 year old boys trying to do like state government basically mm -hmm. for a week where they like elect they they divide everybody into two political parties that have like fake names they're like you're the federalists you're the nationalists and you can figure out your own party platforms we're not going to tell you what you guys believe in and then you're gonna like elect a party chair and then you're gonna like have a governor's like you're going to select 
candidates for governor. And then you're going to have a, at the end of the week, we're going to elect a governor between these like two political parties and whatever. It is a really interesting, really well-made documentary about 2018 Boy State in Texas. And it's super fascinating because, you know, it's Texas. So the vast majority of these boys are very conservative and like have incredibly conservative. And so like a lot of the conversation is about like gun control and abortion and like these sort of like very incendiary issues. You know, you have 17 year olds kind of debating these things and and like sort of what's important. And then there are some like progressive young men as well that are kind of like in the lion's den at Boy State. And it's about essentially a, a few different people that run a few of these different young men that run for governor, quote unquote, governor at Boy State. It's just really, really interesting. It is a, a great watch. Uh, it's directed by um, Jesse Moss and Amanda Mc... I can't read my own handwriting. Amanda McBain, I think. Uh, McBlain, maybe. Anyway, it's on Apple TV. It's a fantastic documentary, Boys State. It'll If you like want to watch something political, m- won't. On a smaller scale. Yeah, on a smaller <laughs> scale that has fewer consequences. <laughs> watch Boys State. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Brian, how about you? Uh, so I watched Ratched on Netflix. Oh, the Ryan Murphy prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, which basically the only thing it has in common with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is that she is a hard nosed, manipulative head nurse of a psychiatric hospital, and her name is Mildred Ratched, and it takes place like 10 years before Cuckoo's Nest. That's basically it. Like everything else is just like, let's go crazy with this character and do whatever we want with her and not really worry about the tone or or anything to do with the original, the source material. But it's Sarah Paulson as mm-hmm. Nurse Ratched, which is why I was excited about hey. it. Yeah. Uh, who, of course, is fantastic as she always is. Um, it, it sort of fall if you know Ryan Murphy stuff, it falls somewhere between the campiness of American Horror Story and the sort of straight drama of American Crime Story, like the OJ and nice. um, yeah Versace. But it's like beautifully shot. the The lighting, costuming, and production design are full of these rich, vibrant colors, and it's the whole thing feels decadent. It feels like you are like eating dessert when you watch like just a a light cue or just like look in the background of a scene and see all the uh the set design and everything um and then the rest of the cast is awesome too it's sarah paulson cynthia nixon sharon stone in like this amazing kind of villain-esque role amanda Plummer, who i haven't seen in a million years judy davis who i haven't seen in a million years but who is still so awesome in this uh sophie okanedo and then uh, Finn Whitrock, who's in like every Ryan Murphy thing. He's great. Mm-hmm. And then Vincent D'Onofrio is just like a deliciously creepy governor who like <laughs> just perfect Vincent D'Onofrio role. It's not like the best show of all time, but it's just it was just really watchable and a really good time. Nice. Awesome. Very cool. And if you haven't seen Cuckoo's Nest, like I we rewatched it right before uh, watch it, the show came out and it's great to watch. It's a great movie, but you do not need to watch it at all to yeah. appreciate Ratchet. There's nothing to do with it, basically. I got that sense from the trailers. Uh-huh. <laughs> cool. Well, so I recently rewatched Moulin Rouge for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. So there is a YouTube creator uh, named Alex Nickel, who has a YouTube channel, Technicality. And he is young. And so he's created... <laughs> <laughs> He's created a Nebula original series uh, called Alex Goes Bananas. And the, basically the whole premise is 
he was born in 2001. And so he gets other old YouTube creators like <laughs> myself uh, to explain to him and introduce him to things that he has never heard of before. Uh, and so some previous episodes are Limp Biscuit and Gwen Stefani and Spice Girls and Will Smith, the movie Clueless. Uh, and so it's it's... It's exhausting to watch if you're our age, I think, but also really fascinating. <laughs> it's educational. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, they don't know any of this stuff. Nope. Right. Like, okay. And so I was trying to think, what should I talk about? He was born in 2001. Well, Moulin Rouge was a very important part of my teenage years. And so I was curious to see what his experience would be revisiting it. And I feel like he gives it a fair shake. It sounds like the movie is equally bonkers to kids of this generation <laughs> yeah. uh, and probably as divisive. Yeah, it's it's a really fun watch. He, the format is it's, it's me telling him to go watch it. He goes and researches it and explains the movie and the inception of the movie. And I learned things that I didn't know about Moulin Rouge from mm. it. Uh, so it's fun. It let me think about Moulin Rouge again, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and so we'll have a link to that in the description. But Alex Goes Bananas, Moulin Rouge, featuring myself as the old person. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Perfect. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about Coraline. Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major. Our editor is Eric Schneider. I've been joined today by the Lessons from the Screenplay team. Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Calleros. I am Michael Tucker. You can find all of our Twitter handles in the show notes. Reach out, say hi. Let us know what you think about Coraline, stop motion, your favorite kind of animated films, whatever you want. Let us know on Twitter. And thank you so, so much to the patrons on Patreon who make this show possible. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.